Now, I have to confess I lied to you all. I had a plan to do Ruth in a week. I'm going to do a couple of chapters this morning, kind of do an overview Wednesday night, cover the whole thing, and then next Sunday finish it out and be done with Ruth and moving on. And I got to reading this little book. <laughs> We're going to be here a while. We need to spend some time in Ruth. There's too much here. I find as we move through the scriptures, an interesting kind of tension at play in my heart. And that tension is that I love being right where we are. You know, we got to the end of the book of Judges, and I was sad that we got to the end. Difficult book that it was. I, every time we finish a book, I kind of have this sadness, like, oh, okay, we're done with that now. And we finished Genesis, and I felt like we were sending a child off to college, you know. And then we got an Exodus, and I was so excited. And with every book, that's the way it's been for me. A, a sadness followed by a great excitement. And I opened up Ruth and, and have been studying and reading over the last couple of weeks here, and uh, what I've done, and I'll, I'll invite you to do the same thing, is I've been uh, purposing to read the book of Ruth once a day. It's four chapters, take you 15 or 20 minutes if you're a slow reader like me, and uh, you can get through it. And it's amazing what happens when you just pour over the same passages uh, day after day. Spend time there, sit there, wait there, watch what the Lord has for you there. There is so much in the book of Ruth. A true story. An actual account, a history of something that happened to a woman named Ruth and another woman named Naomi. It absolutely is true and legitimate as as a historical uh, fact. But it is full, as so much of the Bible is, with the supernatural. I don't mean supernatural happenings. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find any overt miracles, things where someone is, is healed or something else. There are miracles here. But it's supernatural in that each one of these characters portrays something prophetically. This whole story is a basically a broad overview. I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's it's an amazing book. And we're going to spend some, we're going to at least be in here uh, through the month of August, just taking time to pour over these verses and understand and consider Ruth. Uh, I mentioned there was a tension. The other side of the tension for me is I, I want to move on. I want to get to 1 Samuel. You know, I want to read about Saul and David, get into the life of King David. That'll be awesome. And I can't wait till we get to the prophets like Isaiah. I'm just dying to get to Isaiah. And eventually the New Testament would be nice. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and on into Paul's writings. I can't wait to get there, but I can't stand moving too fast beyond where we are. So, the book of Ruth, for your consideration this morning, we begin in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Hilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab, and they remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah, don't confuse that. The name of the other one was Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Then both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people 
and giving them food. Father, as we begin the story of Ruth, we pray your blessing, not just on this morning, Lord, but your blessing on our study of this whole book. This precious book is inserted here in the scriptures. We know it's not here by accident. We know it's not coincidental. We know it didn't just happen to get chosen. We realize, Father, and we will see, I believe, the reason why you put the book here. I pray for this morning that you will illuminate our hearts and our minds and our spirits, Father. That you will strengthen us with the truth of your word. And I pray over the ensuing weeks that Ruth will, not just the individual, but the book, the story, the prophecy involved here will come alive before our very eyes. As we know, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut. I pray, Father, that, that with surgical precision, your word would cut into our hearts and our lives. That you will make changes where changes are needed. That you will cut away the things that, that are slowing us in our walk with Jesus. That you will cut away, Father, the, the veil that, that would blind us from seeing your truth. The reality of what you're doing in our lives, in this world today, of where you're taking us and where you're leading us. We are so interested, Father, in knowing the truth. And so interested, Father, in walking in that and living it out in our lives. So, Father, would you bless us with the study of the book of Ruth and your servants found therein. May we learn from them. And once again be amazed by you because of what's here. Holy Spirit, be our guide this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Ruth. In the Hebrew, Ruth's name means intimate friend or beautiful companion. And it's the perfect name for this woman. Because she is famously quoted, in fact, Jim has this on his wedding ring, Ruth 1.16, Whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God shall be my God. Perhaps you've heard that verse before. It's often used in marriages, in weddings, as a, a declaration, a statement of commitment. What's interesting is it's not a statement of commitment in this story between a woman and a man, but between a woman and a woman, Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi, who is a woman who had a dramatic impact on the life of Ruth, who touched Ruth's life and changed Ruth's life to the point that this Moabite woman raised in Moab, enemy to Israel, ends up wanting to give all of that up and worship and follow the God of Naomi, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that you and I know of as Jesus Christ, the one and the same God. Hebrew names often give us insight into the character of the person and to the plot of their story. And it's amazing how that happens, but it's again by the supernatural grace of God that these things occur. That people are named a certain way and then we see their names actually play out in their lives. And you'll see that happen with Ruth. But not only is her name a great, a great description of her character, but the name Ruth is a great description for the book of Ruth. It is a beautiful companion. It's an intimate friend. I have found a great love for this book just over the last couple of weeks. Again, just reading it once a day. I can't wait to get back to it. I wander by my Bible and sitting there and I think, oh, I've got to read some more of Ruth and go back and read the story again and again. My kids, as they were growing up, used to love certain bedtime stories and we would read certain stories again. 
I'm to the point now where Corey doesn't allow me to tell him stories anymore. You know, he just shakes his head and says, get out of my room, Dad, you know. And Hannah, she doesn't want stories. Well, she still kind of wants stories. Hayden loves them. We have this ongoing kind of narrative story about this pig named Butterball. And he is totally into Butterballs. But that's not why I want to get back to this story. The reason why I keep getting excited about reading through these four chapters is because every time I read them, something new is shown to me. Something amazing. As a matter of fact, Jim called me yesterday and we were talking about this book a little bit. Jim's going to be speaking on one of the Sundays when I'm away in August here. And he said, hey, I know what I want to talk about. And he shared it with me. And I said, nope, that's what I'm talking about. You know, We started arguing over it. You know, And something was said about a bowl of Cheerios. And you'll have to ask Jim about that at another time. But uh, it is an amazing book with some, some things in it that will literally blow your mind as to their prophetic significance. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself. But it's a beautiful companion And I encourage you to be reading through it. At least once this week, open up your Bible and read through from from first chapter to fourth chapter. Just read the book of Ruth. Find the time, sit down, read the story. You'll be blessed if you do. But there are three things I want to point out to you as we get to know this intimate friend, this beautiful companion. I'm going to give you a lot of information this morning as we enter into this book. In fact, about the first half, maybe three quarters of of our time together this morning is just breaking down some basic understanding of this story as we get into it. It. The last part, I'm going to talk about something very personal and specific to our stories, to our life. But the first part here, three things to know about this book. First of all, the book of Ruth is a story of redemption. Perhaps you've heard that. In fact, the phrase kinsman redeemer that's used from time to time in other scriptures, we've talked about it before, it is most eloquently played out in this story. This is the story of the kinsman redeemer. Expressed and explained as a man named Boaz accepts and redeems Ruth when she comes into the land. Ruth is a Gentile. Boaz is of Israel and and he accepts her, draws her in to be his bride in Israel. But there's another story of redemption here. It's not just the, the redemption of Ruth. As a matter of fact, you could make a case for calling this the book of Naomi. Because it is the story of Naomi. A woman in Israelite who leaves Israel goes to Moab, loses everything, and then, without knowing how, goes back to the land and is redeemed. Her inheritance is redeemed to her in the land of Israel once again. Which gives you some clues as to the prophetic significance of this book. Naomi's name means pleasant. Pleasant. And she leaves the land pleasantly but returns very sorrowfully, as we will see in a few moments. As a matter of fact, when she comes back, verse 20 says, she said to the people who said, is this Naomi? She said, do not call me Naomi, that is pleasant. Call me Mara, that is bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. And yet, in this beautiful story of redemption, you will see Naomi herself redeemed to the land by the story's end. So the book is a story of redemption. Again, you may be aware of that. That's what's normally focused on in the story. But the book of of Ruth is also a story of romance. A story of romance. Ruth, again, is the outsider in this story. She finds herself romanced right into the family line of Israel. And what's neat about this is the intimate interplay between Ruth and Boaz. 
words. First time you read it, you might miss it. The second time you start to notice some things. The third time, the gentleness of Boaz and the kindness of Ruth and the way they interact with each other is really a great romantic story. Now, before you guys roll your eyes, like you know you did when your wife brought home a video copy of The Lake House or The Notebook, you know, to watch. I don't know, man, if your wives do that. They come home with a video and it's, want to watch this with me? It's like, oh, okay. Did something blow up? No? Okay. <laughs> but there's more than redemption and romance in this book. There's something more powerful, more exciting to me than any of that. The book of Ruth is a story of revelation. It's a story of revelation, both historical and prophetical. Historically, this book is critical to us because it links Israel's claim to King David. At the story's end, Boaz and Ruth, they have a son. His name is Obed. He uh, is father then to a man named Jesse, who is father then to a man named David. And so that's the connection to King David. Ruth is here. In fact, some Bible commentators just say it's, it's here as a genealogical link. That's why the story is here. If they say that, they've completely missed the real reason why it's here. But beyond the fact that it links us to King David, that links Israel to King David, it also shows us the genealogical link to Jesus Christ. Ruth, a Moabite. A a Gentile, an outsider of Israel, you can go to Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 and there she is listed in the genealogy of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, has a Gentile in his line and that Gentile is Ruth. But the story, not only being historical in its revelation, is prophetical in its revelation. For you will see, and we'll get back to this in a few weeks, Naomi is a type of Israel. A beautiful picture of Israel, driven from the land, living in sorrow and sadness. Everything goes wrong for her. She is surrounded by death. But Naomi comes back to the land, redeems, has her inheritance redeemed to her, just as Israel is in the process. In fact, right now we are on what I would call, we're on the precipice of Naomi's redemption of Israel's redemption of their inheritance into the land. It's very soon here in the place we stand in history. Ruth, Naomi, a picture of Israel. Ruth is a picture of the church, of you and of me, of the collective church body, but also of us individually, Gentiles and outsiders. People who were not a people, but now are a people in Jesus Christ. Boaz, of course, portrays for us Jesus Christ himself. It's an amazing picture as you wander through. Ruth chapter 2 verse 20 tells us the following. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed, speaking about Boaz, of the Lord, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. And again Naomi said to her, The man, Boaz, is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. That phrase, close relative, is the one you Bible students have heard before. It's the word in Hebrew, ga'al. Ga'al means kinsman redeemer. He is our kinsman redeemer. What's a kinsman redeemer? Turning your Bibles back to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Israel had an interesting law on their books. One that God put here for the preservation of family lines in Israel. That critical preservation that was necessary and needed early on in the life of this people. And in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 5, it tells us the following. When brothers live together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother 
shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Which is why in Israel, when the younger sons, the younger brothers in the family knew that the older brother was getting married, they wanted to see what she looked like. <laughs> they wanted to know something about this woman. You know, just in case the older brother kicks the bucket and they have to take over, they want to make sure that they approve. Verse 6 says, It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Israel. God is concerned with this ongoing family line. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come up to him in the sight of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. I love the creativity of God's law. And she shall declare, Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house, and in Israel his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. (laughs) You don't want that above your door in Israel. Why is that his name? Because he's a heel. (laughs) Think about that. He refuses to take responsibility for his family. And responsibility to his family was of utmost importance to the Lord and to the people. You might say, how could someone marry from responsibility rather than from love? And that's our problem in our society today. We don't understand that love is responsibility. That love is commitment. That love is decision. We have somewhere along the line transferred to thinking that love is about feeling. The love is all about emotion. And if the emotion has gone, man, the, the, the love is not there in my heart, then the relationship is ended because I don't feel the way I felt. Well, look back to Israel and the responsibility even of a brother to take his dead brother's wife, to care for her, to love her. Well, how could he love her if he, if he didn't have those feelings for her? He would. He would. The precious scene in Fiddler on the Roof. You know, where, where the two main characters, the, the, the main guy, what's his name, Tevya, and his wife are standing there together. And he kind of looks at her because his, his children now want to marry for relation, feeling-based love. And he looks at her and he goes, do you love me? She kind of slaps him and, you know, she sings that whole thing about for 25 years I've washed your clothes and cooked your meals and taken care of you. How can you ask me, do you love me? And by the end of the song she says, I guess I do. (laughs) They learned to love each other out of responsibility and decision. And what's amazing is those relationships, those love relationships lasted far better than our feelings-based American marriages tend to last. There is something to this, something to consider. But back to this whole idea of the kinsman redeemer, that's what the all was. The younger brother who would take the responsibility of the older one who was dead. In the story of Ruth, Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. He is next in line. He is related then to Elimelech who died in Moab. And we'll see the kinsman redeemer play out in this story. It also reminds us, by the way, that there was one who redeemed his bride. But unlike the kinsman redeemer in Deuteronomy 25, though he redeemed his bride, he still was spat upon. He still was called a heel. He still had the shoes removed so that the nails could be driven through his feet. Our kinsman redeemer, our Gaal, Jesus Christ. Ruth is a beautiful companion. 
Ruth is an intimate friend as a book, as a woman. It's a story of redemption set against a time of rebellion. It is a story of romance painted on a canvas of moral relativity. And it's a story of revelation given in a time of stark hopelessness in Israel and in the life of Naomi. And that's where our story begins. That's a basic background getting into the book. But our story begins near the end of the hopeless season of the Judges. The commentators believe possibly around the time of Gideon, maybe a little bit later, this story took place. So we're still in the season of the rule of the judges, a dark, bad time in Israel's history. And it's interesting to me, the chapter starts off, back in Ruth chapter 1, it says it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. A famine in the land. Not surprising that there would be a famine in the land at this time. It says, a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. The name of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion, the Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. And now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Now open any newspaper today and you'll find something to be true. The first sentence of any well-written newspaper article is packed with information. A good reporter will do that. They will jam-pack as much as they can into that first sentence. Sometimes you'll find it's like a run-on sentence. It just keeps going and going. You're trying to find the period in it. Because good reporting does that. It captures your attention with all the information it can right up front. If you want to know the least amount of information in a newspaper story, go to the end of the story and it kind of fizzles out and stuff about family history and you know, stuff that doesn't really matter in the story. The most important things are the things that you see right up front. J. Vernon McGee says the Holy Spirit is a great reporter. I like that because right up front, in the first verse, we see a lot. We understand a lot about the book of Ruth. Three things right off the bat. We know the when, the where, and the why of this story. When? It's in the days of the judges. Where? These people are Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. Ephrathites. Now that's important. Because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Same town of Jesus' birth. Why is it Bethlehem Ephrathah? Because there were two Bethlehems in the day. One was in Judah, one was elsewhere. And so to know exactly which city it was, they would say Bethlehem Ephrathah, or they would say they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us, As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forths are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This verse is quoted in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 and Matthew chapter 2 verse 6 locating again the exact Bethlehem of Jesus' birth. Now Bethlehem means house of bread. It's a little bakery. That's Bethlehem. House of bread. Ephrathah means fruitful and Judah means praise. You put that all together and this was the house of bread a fruitful place in the land of praise. But this man Elimelech takes his wife and his two sons and he leaves the fruitful house of bread and praise and he moves to Moab. And Moab has an interesting and different distinction than the house of bread. For Moab literally means, well I'll read this to you, Psalm 108 verse 9 says, Moab is my wash pot. They leave the house of bread for the wash pot, literally gang, the toilet bowl. God is saying graphically, Moab is my toilet. My wash pot. My commode, if you will. Moab does not have a good reputation with the Lord. 
Normally you don't call someone you feel good about a toilet bowl. And that's what the Lord is saying about Moab. Why do they leave then? They leave this, this land, the, the, the house of bread, the fruitful house, in the place of praise. They leave it and they go to the toilet bowl. Why would they go to Moab? And the answer is very clear again in verse 1. Famines. There's a famine in the land. A famine in the house of bread. The bread was not being produced. The fruitful land was not fruitful. The place of praise was a place of struggle and difficulty. Have you experienced that yourself? Where the place of praise doesn't make sense for you. Perhaps Sunday morning worship just isn't doing it for you in a season. Or you're finding your prayer life to be fruitless. You, you go to the house of bread, the Word, and you try and be, but you, it's just, it just needs to stay on the shelf because it's not meaning anything to you. Maybe you find your devotion to the Lord empty or dry or lean. And you ask the question, as I have asked in the past in my life, why am I not getting fed in the house of bread? Why is it that no matter how committed I am and how much I try to read the Word, how much I try to pray, I am not being fed? Why am I in this place of famine? And you need to understand, famine in the Bible is always a picture of judgment. And judgment always follows sin. And we can in our lives be choosing a path of sin, a direction of rebellion, a way that leads us from God instead of to God. Still be showing up at church, still be doing, you know, a small group, still be involved in devotion, but but it's just not working for us and we're not recognizing the reason for our famine is judgment for the sin that is in our lives. The sin that we don't really want to deal with. Because, you see, as human beings, we want to be able to have our cake and eat it too. We, we want the bread with the butter. We want it all to We want to be able to do whatever we want in abject rebellion to God, but still, you know, show up and be fed on a Sunday morning. And it just doesn't work. If you're having trouble being fed, maybe you should pause and ask, what am I doing here? What am I missing? Famine in the Bible, it indicates judgment due to sin, and it's no surprise that Israel would be hit by famine in the time of the judges. This time of apostasy. As we talked about through the last study, seven generations, where every single generation in this seven-generation line rejects the Lord, rebels against the Lord, and follows after other gods. No wonder there was famine in the house of bread. The Lord says in the book of Amos, I'm going to send a famine to the land, but not a famine for food, a famine for the word, because you would not take in the word. A way back from famine, by the way, is to be in the word, as you're doing this morning. But Elimelech takes his family, he leaves the house of bread, fruitfulness and praise, to find food in the toilet bowl. So this is what he's done. It doesn't seem like the wrong thing to do, it seems like the right thing to do. To Elimelech, hey, we don't have any food here, let's go there. It seems right. Remember we talked about this. The time of the judges, a time when every man did what was right in his own eyes. It seems like a good idea. But think about what happened to Elimelech. He gets down to Moab, and after their arrival, soon after their arrival, Elimelech dies. Ironic. He goes to Moab so his family can live, and he dies. Within ten years, both of his sons die. After, by the way, taking Moabite wives, which was forbidden in Israel. They were to take Israelite wives. But Elimelech lifts up his family and he moves them without thinking about what would happen, where they would go. 
Too often, this is what we do. Look at verse 3. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about two years. And then both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. When things are not fruitful in our walk with the Lord, unfortunately, we head to Moab. We so often will choose the toilet bowl of the world. Psalm 106 verse 13 tells us that Israel soon forgot God's works. They waited not for His counsel. They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And He gave them their request but sent leanness into their soul. And that's how the Lord will often work in our life. You want to choose the world? Okay. You want the thing? You want to eat of the world? All right. I will give you that request. Why is that, Lord? Because he is interested in the free will of man. Fascinating concept with a sovereign God. That he would give us that choice, that that ability to do whatever we want. And he will say, all right, if you don't want the bread I have to give, you'd rather go get your food somewhere else, I'll let you. But the reality is, gang, we're told this again and again in the scriptures, it will lead to leanness in your soul. It will lead to an emptiness. This is not a statement of judgment. It is a statement of truth. So they head down to Moab, Elimelech and his family, and there is nothing there but heartache and sorrow. Elimelech dies, Mahlon dies, and Kilion dies. And I want you to, for a moment now, put yourself in the position of Naomi. Here's a woman, and ladies, you you think about this, who has lost her husband. Within ten years of that, she lost her firstborn son. And she watched the death of her second-born son. She now has buried her entire family. A family of four set out from Israel to Moab. And there's one left. There's one left. She is in a place of sorrow. Mahlon and Kilion, it's no wonder they died. There were never healthy boys, as evidenced by their names. Mahlon means sick and Kilion means dying. And I wouldn't encourage you to use those names for your children. Sick and this is my son, uh, nosebleed, and this is my other son, one foot in the grave. That's what, we, that's what we call them, you know, they're my kids. Sick and dying. Elimelech did not count the spiritual cost of relocating his family, and as I mentioned before, his sons even went out and ended up marrying Moabite girls. And now his wife and daughters-in-law are left destitute. And the whole reason Moab moved, the whole reason he did what he did was to save his family. And it caused nothing but death and sorrow. How did Elimelech die? We don't know. Heart attack, camel rage, I'm not sure. No one really knows. The thing is, life and death are completely in the hands of God, not in our hands. Whether we decide to stay in the house of bread or go elsewhere, life and death is not our choice. It is not our decision. Psalm 139.16 says, In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet not one of them had, had, was to be. Deuteronomy 29 verse 29 says the secret things belong unto the Lord our God but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever and ever. There are things God knows we simply don't know. There are certain things that we are not to know. I often thank the Lord that I have no idea what's happening tomorrow because when tomorrow comes and some tragedy hits I'm glad I didn't worry about it all night long ahead of time. I thank God for His grace in not letting us see two weeks from now, or a year from now, or ten years down the line. He knows our hearts can really only take one day at a time. 
We still stress out and worry, but the Lord, He knows the secret things. And He only reveals to us that which we need to know. Right now, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that we see in a mirror dimly, and only then will we see face to face. And that means, by the way, if you are in the midst of sorrow or trouble or heartache, remember that right now you only see in the mirror dimly. You cannot see the other side of it. You can't see the way out. You don't understand where you are or how you're going to get there. God does. He sees it. And you don't. That's why we're called to live by faith. Because in reality we can't see. Our eyes are limited. Our eyes are dim. Faith is simply trusting the providence of God to work and to will perfectly. What's left now of Elimelech's family is a shipwreck in Moab. They're on the brink of extinction, weighed down with all the sorrow and hopelessness you can imagine. And what's amazing about this to me is the genealogical line of Jesus Christ got down to one person. See how close? I think Satan had a hand in this. I think Satan had a hand in the death of Elimelech and in the death of his two sons thinking somewhere along the line he could, he could cause a breach in the genealogy of Jesus. Stop Jesus from coming at all costs. Stop the, the coming into the world of God's Son, of redemption, of salvation. He had no idea God was going to reach into Moab and pluck out Ruth and bring her into the family line of Christ. Satan just doesn't have that kind of mind. He's really a little short-sighted if you think about it. The Lord is long-sighted. Well, now Naomi, Naomi has buried her husband. And both of her children. Cheryl and I went to a funeral several years ago. A funeral for a little... How old was she? 18 months? Two years? I thought I could handle it. I didn't even know this child. I I knew the parents. The father was a youth minister friend of mine. So we went to the funeral. I went to support them and and encourage them. sat down there at about the fourth, fifth row back. And there was a little coffin... That was really hard to look at. Just to realize that loss. The death of a spouse, difficult. It can be horrible. Death of a child? Naomi has lost two. And her husband. She's sorrowful, gang. This story begins in abject sadness. No wonder Naomi wanted to change her name to Bitter. Because her life was bitter. All of her friends, her family, everything that was good was in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And she left there because her husband said, let's go. Okay, well that's alright. I'll be with my husband. I've got my boys, our families together. And I can go anywhere if my family's together. I've said that. I'll move anywhere you want me to, Lord, with my family. But now she is all alone. Some of you know this place of bitterness. You've buried a husband or a child or a hope. You've buried a dream. You've buried a marriage that has gone sour and died. Or a career that you thought was going to be the one ends up in the grave. But I want you to hear something this morning. In that place of sorrow, in the place of sadness, God shows up. That's where God shows up. Listen to this, verse 6. She arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and giving them food. Did you see it? God showed up. 
This is the first time in the book of Ruth where the name of the Lord is even used. And once again, Naomi, she hears in her sadness, in her sorrow, in her depression, she hears, wait a minute, there's food again in the house of bread. There's fruit again growing in the fruitful place. There is a reason for praise in the land of Judah. The Lord has visited the land. And He's mentioned here, and this is important to understand about the book and the story. It's the first time He's mentioned, and He's mentioned here in the sixth verse. Now, don't read too much into this. But the truth is that in the Bible, we know that six is the number of man. And we know that God is intimately acquainted with even the commonplace dealings with man. Even the fact that there was not bread in Bethlehem, the Lord shows up. The Lord shows up in the famine. He shows up in the time of sorrow that Naomi has. He's there. Now the Lord, Yahweh, the I Am, this, min- this, this name for God is mentioned 23 times in this four-chapter book of Ruth. The characters in the book will speak the Lord's name 21 of those times. But the author of the story will only speak his name twice. At the beginning and at the end of the book. Like, like bookmarks here. On either side. Bookends of a wonderful story. Verse 6 in chapter 1 says, The Lord visited His people in giving them food. And then in verse 13 of chapter 4, the other bookend tells us, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The Lord begins the story in sorrow. He ends the story in joy. And this is how the Lord enters into our lives. He will often enter in in that place of sorrow and trouble and distress. The Lord found you, Spencer, at the funeral for your mother. A place of sorrow. Ask Spencer how he's doing today before he leaves. Because the Lord has bookended Spencer's life in a place of joy. This is what he does. This is characteristic of our Father. And by the way, this is the mega theme of the book of Ruth. The hero of the story is not Ruth. The hero is not Naomi. It's not even Boaz. The redeeming hero in the book of Ruth is God Himself. For in our very normal, average, everyday lives, God shows up. In the normal, average, everyday life of a Jewish like Naomi, a Moabitess like Ruth, a Jew like Boaz, God shows up. He makes His presence known. His hands are at work and His hands are big. Listen to this verse, Isaiah 49, 16. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your name on the palms of God's hands. Now my daughter will do that often. She'll write down notes or phone numbers or email addresses of her friends all over her hands. She'll come home and she'll have to transfer those over. Cheryl will do that from time to time. No paper, just give me a pen because i got a notepad right here. And that's God saying, I will inscribe you, but not with pencil or pen or crayon or something that washes off. You are inscribed onto the palms of the hand of God. His hands are big. And He is concerned with and focused on even your place of sorrow. I want you to understand, as we get to the end here, two absolutely critical things about the character of God, especially for that place of sorrow. Number one is simply this, and these are simple, but together they're powerful. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. 
In other words, God has absolute awareness and authority over all things. Nothing happens outside of the will and awareness of God. Nothing. Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 16.33 even tells us the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The indication is even the roll of the dice, the number that shows up on the dice, is the decision of the Lord. Don't take that to Vegas. But it's the Lord who makes these determinations, these decisions, according to the writer of Proverbs. You can't get away from Him. Try as we might. We can move to Moab, but we cannot make God forget us. Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. Why is that? Because your name is inscribed on his hand. And you matter to him. Each and every one of us, individually. I've got this bumper sticker at home. Hannah's stolen it from me and put it up on her wall. Jesus loves everybody, but I'm his favorite. And it's true for all of us. I am his, I stand before you as the favorite of Jesus Christ this morning. And you sit before me as the favorite of Jesus Christ this morning. Isn't that wonderful? I can't say that about all of you. No offense. But you're not all my favorites. My favorite's sitting in the back row, and it's not Annette. Much as I love you, Annette. (laughs) But God has each one of you as his favorite. God is sovereign. Jesus said in Matthew 10.29, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even if a bird dies, God knows about it. And Jesus says, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. I'm not going to make a comment on that. (laughs) Do not fear. You are more valuable, Jesus says, than many sparrows. Let me ask you this question. Do you really think that your sorrow came as a surprise to the Lord? Do you think that your hard times caught God God off guard? That maybe, oh no, he he was busy in Africa. When the accident occurred, when the phone call from the doctor came, when things began to go south in your business, God was on the other side of the world. He missed it. He just didn't, he knew it was going to happen long before you ever knew. In fact, he knew it was going to happen long before you were born. He knew. God is sovereign. So Rick, are you saying God planned my hardships? He's not the one who moved us to Moab. He's not the one who made decisions in our lives that we made that caused us the struggles and difficulties that we have. Well, wait a minute. I'm confused. You're saying that God is sovereign. Is He sovereign or isn't He? Before we blame God for our circumstances, listen, there's one more thing we have to add into the theological equation of God's sovereignty. He is absolutely sovereign. But, number two, God is also absolutely good. He's good. What comes from the Lord, what results from the Lord's work in this world and in your life is only and always goodness. Well, I don't feel that right now, Rick. Well, listen. Psalm 34a. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. 
And in his own self-declaration or self-disclosure in the book of Exodus, God says in Exodus 34.6, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. In Exodus, by the way, Moses says, God, let me see your glory. And he goes, you know, my glory will blow you away. It will kill you, but I will let you see my goodness. I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. And Moses was just, oh, wow. God is good. And if you get one without the other, you will miss God. Goodness without sovereignty is Oscar Miltos. He's a good guy. He just can't handle anything. He's a good God. He just can't control the circumstances of my life, unfortunately. He's a nice old man, but he sits up in his rocker and he just wishes that we would follow him, but he really has no power to do so. That's that's goodness without sovereignty. Sovereignty without goodness is what I would call cruel, cold Calvinism. You've got to be careful because I can step on some toes here. We have a lot of Calvinist mindset, especially in Oak Harbor. Calvinism. It's the idea, it teaches Calvinism unconditional election, which in essence means everything is planned and purposed by God. True unconditional election means you can't do anything that God hasn't already mapped out for you to do. You will do what God mapped out to do. It it denies free will. This aspect of Calvinism. Cruel, cold Calvinism. For God's sovereignty without His goodness leads us to a place of despair. My daughter was at a place this weekend. She went to a thing called Harmony Explosion. It's a vocal camp for four days. And she got there and found out that she was roomed with a girl who claimed to be bisexual. High school girl. And Hannah quietly went to the supervisor and said, I'm not comfortable with this. And they gave Hannah another room. Hannah was hoping just to be able to kind of slide out of the situation and not have to really deal with it. But of course, as she's moving out of the room, the girl's going, what's wrong? Why are you leaving? Why, why aren't you staying here with me? You just want to go stay with one of your friends? No, they're putting me in, in a private room over here. Why? And Hannah said, and I was so proud of her. She said, you know, I like you as my friend, but you need to understand I am, I'm uncomfortable with the fact that you're bisexual. And the girl said this, and it broke my heart. She said, I was born this way, and I have cursed God for it. Does God make people gay? Does God force somebody in His sovereignty to be bisexual? Is it the hand of God that causes painful things to happen in our lives? The problem, gang, with God's sovereignty and His goodness set aside, when you only consider sovereignty, is that God does not sit in heaven and decree abuse. God does not sit in heaven and plan out rape and murder or child pornography or disease in this world. God isn't sitting up there going, okay, I think this person's going to have an absolutely tragic life their whole life. Let's see how they deal with it. That is not God. So how does this work? If God is sovereign, isn't everything that happens according to His will? And the answer to that question is no. Biblically speaking, God hates sin. Sin does not happen according to God's will. He hates it. God gets angry. He weeps. He mourns, which should tell us something about God, that things happen in this world God does not want to have happen. Well, isn't He sovereign? Yes, He is. 
So why do these things happen? Because He has given man a free will and man chooses sin. And you may be in a place of sorrow and tragedy that has nothing to do with your sin in particular, but it may have to do with the sin of another. My husband dying of a disease, how is that the result of the sin of another? Hey, I don't believe there was any disease in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve could have lived forever had they not sinned. Paul says even the world groans. Romans chapter 8. It's groaning in anticipation of the coming of Jesus and the revelation of the sons of man. It's groaning, it's aching because the world right now has been infected with sin and sin infects absolutely even down to disease in our world now that you can trace back and I guarantee if we had a big map we could find the sin that led to the disease that affects all of us today. Even disease. So how do we reconcile man's free will with God's sovereignty? And the answer is goodness. It is God's goodness. And this is amazing. Please don't miss this. Jeremiah 32.17 says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing. And so in the midst of our sorrows, we can know this great truth, a verse you should have memorized, implanted on your brains, Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. That is goodness and sovereignty. Because He is the sovereign God and He is a good God, He works out all things for good. Not all things are good. But he makes all things become good. Ask Naomi. She knows. The woman who married her husband, who put both her sons in the ground, who comes back to the land and wants to change her name to bitterness, the book of Ruth ends with Naomi in chapter 4, redeemed back to her land in Israel and bouncing her baby grandson on her knee. Goodness. Bad things are happening in Moab, a picture of the world. But God causes all things, our sovereign God, to work out for good. Though we may not see it right now. As Naomi was in Moab and everything was going wrong, she could not see the goodness of God. But that did not change the fact that the goodness of God was real. Listen, God makes good out of the bad. He makes a way out of the sorrow. I want to tell you one other thing. Coming up here on Tuesday, July 24th of this week, is a celebration, not a celebration, it's a commemoration in Israel called Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av is a day in history where much sorrow has fallen on the Jewish people. It is a day in history where the revolt at Kadesh Barnea is supposed to have happened. You know the one I'm talking about where they were on the verge of the promised land about to enter in and the spies came back and said we can't take the giants and the people's heart failed and so for 40 years they were redirected into the wilderness where they wandered. Tisha B'Av the ninth of Av in 586 B.C., Solomon's temple, the first temple, was wiped out, raised to the ground on Tisha B'Av. In 70 A.D., the second temple was wiped out, burned to the ground by Titus and the Romans on Tisha B'Av. 135 A.D., Hadrian wiped out all the Jews in Jerusalem, putting down the Bar Kokhba revolt on Tisha B'Av, the 9th of Av, this same day. 
You can follow it down through history. 1290 AD, all the Jews were expelled from England and not a Jew would be allowed in England for a hundred years on Tisha B'Av, 1290 AD. 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, all the Jews were expelled from Spain. There are some who think that Columbus was part Jewish and part of his reason for sailing on his ship was to get out when the rest of the Jewish people were expelled. And interestingly, in 1939, Hitler announced his final solution on the 9th of Av. And so the Jewish people in Israel today, they they commemorate the day. Tuesday is that day. And on that day, they have a time of fasting and sorrow. Now, I don't tell you about that just to give you a history lesson. I tell you because even in that There is something amazing in Scripture about our sovereign and good God, how He turns sorrow into goodness. Listen to this verse, Zechariah 8.19. Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth month. The tenth month is the month of Av. The fast of the month of Av, gang, will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. Tisha B'Av, this day of sorrow for all of Israel, even that day, the Lord declares, will become a celebration of joy in spite of all the sorrow that has happened. God makes a good come out of the bad. He brings us out of the sorrow. And the book of Ruth is the story of the sovereign goodness of God. By the way, the story takes place at harvest time. The wheat harvest, the barley harvest. And it's not luck, it's not chance, it's not Mother Nature or global warming that brought about the harvest that you will read about in the book of Ruth. It was that Ruth 1.6 tells us the Lord had visited His people in giving them food. Even in the famine, the Lord knows how to bring good out of the bad. If you're hungry, if you're hopeless... If you're sorrowful, even to the point of death, the Lord knows how to make good come out of your sorrow and even turn the bad into good things. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this precious book. But thank you more so, Father, for your gracious goodness to us. Lord, we bow before your sovereignty and we know that nothing happens outside of your awareness. We know every unjust and sorrowful and difficult hardship that has ever fallen on man or woman on this planet, we know, did not go unnoticed by you. And we know, Father, it is your heart's intent to be good to bring goodness out of our suffering and joy out of our sorrow. Lord, I pray this morning for this fellowship that you will bring joy out of our sorrow. I know there are any number of us this morning who have had great loss in our lives and struggle and hardship and difficulty, things that we did not understand, things, Father, we may still be striving to figure out. And Lord, I pray you would just give us the ability to lay those down at your feet. And you will show us the joy and the goodness that you have planned for us. And in all these things, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, for our greatest joy will be seeing you again. In Jesus' name, amen.